Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! Indiana wants me, but I can't go back there. It's Election Shock Therapy, Summer Break Edition. I'm Chris Moore, and... I am at the shore of beautiful Crooked Lake, just outside of Angola, Indiana, recording this as the waves lap against the side of the dock behind me. And joining me are three other people with some uh, deep Indiana connections. And they are... Mitchell Grum. Matt Kukum. And Sarah Shady, public philosopher. You may know me (laughs) from (laughs) another (laughs) lesser known podcast on our channel. We pulled Sarah from her uh, role as public philosopher into election shock therapy because we needed uh, a philosopher and an ethicist to help us think through um, the one Supreme Court case we're going to be discussing today. You may remember that election shock therapy usually breaks from our summer vacation doldrums uh, to review and discuss some of the most important Supreme Court decisions. And it won't surprise you to find out that we're going to be talking about the most uh, probably impactful and watched Supreme Court decision of my lifetime, at least. And that is uh, the uh, Dobbs case, which is going, which overturns Roe v. Wade as a standard guaranteeing a uh, right to an abortion at a nationwide level in the United States. We're going to be unpacking that and discussing it. So we needed Sarah uh, to provide um, so, uh, um, uh, an ethical uh, and moral philosopher angle. Uh, we're gonna, we have uh, Matt Cookham and uh, Mitch Crum, who both, I will just point out at this point, uh, got their PhDs from Indiana University. So um, a little bit of ways from where I'm at currently in Indiana, but um, home, uh, home ground here for them. And Sarah, you grew up in Indiana, correct? I did about 45 minutes away from Crooked Lake uh, in Angola, Indiana. I was born and raised in Fort Wayne uh, and a big fan of Indiana basketball. So go IU all the way around. (laughs) So um, I'm completing the circle here by being in Indiana. I grew up in Ohio, just across the border from Indiana. I don't have any allegiances to the institutions of the state, but I'm here happily right now on summer break and, and rubbing it in by putting it into my background for, for my colleagues to see. You know, right, I, I'm, about- I'm, I'm just surprised, Chris, that you even choose to associate with Indiana being from sort of the Ohio state, especially with the lawsuit that was just decided litigation that was just decided about attaching um, that particular word to the front. And I'm surprised Mitch would even, would even go along with being associated with Indiana, but um, I don't okay, want to so, get us off on a bad footing. So, <laughs> so uh, bad footing successfully achieved. Good job. I, uh, um, this is not the most important court case we're going to be talking about, but Mitch, how do you feel about the fact that Ohio State won its trademark case against the Mark Jacobs company to have the right to use the as a defining symbol and characteristic of the institution for marketing purposes? Uh, I think we're in an overly uh, litigious society. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're in the litigious society. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Enough, enough about the Buckeyes and their ridiculous use of definite articles in marketing purposes. Let's, let's talk about um, the sea change in the United States as it relates to abortion. Uh, I'm not going to give much of an overview here. In fact, I'm going to start out unlike usual uh, by throwing right away to our panelists to talk a little bit about how we got to where we're at. And, and there's even amongst people who are very emotionally and even beyond emotionally invet- politically invested in the issue of abortion, there's a fair amount of confusion about what Roe decided back in 1973 and now what Dobbs has decided vis-a-vis Roe. So can I ask you to start by explaining what Roe decided back in 73? Uh, Matt, let's throw to you first. Okay, so so maybe we can first lay out um, just sort of what's going on with Mississippi law and with Roe and with Casey, um, and then we can move into discussing what exactly happened with the Dobbs case and unpack the majority opinion, the concurring opinions, and the dissenting, um, the joint dissenting opinion. So that sounds great. Yeah. Okay. So. So Roe um, was um, a decision um, from some decades ago, and basically it created an absolute right to abortion in the first trimester and held that states could regulate um, the abortion practice in the second trimester to protect the life of the mother, which was considered to be a compelling state interest. And it held that states had a compelling interest into protecting the life of the fetus only the third trimester when it was viable. So this is the viability line. Um, This Mm -hmm. is going to become important in just a minute. Um, And so we can also So um, when we look at the majority opinion written by Justice Alito, we can unpack um, some of the the legal rationale um, that undergirds the Roe decision um, and why it was so controversial. Um, A lesser known case um, in the culture. Can can we point out, before you move on uh, to that, I know you're, I think I know you're here with the next case. Before we mention that, can we just say from a political perspective and from a, um, a societal perspective at the time that Roe was decided night back in 73, it was not seen as this very controversial case. It flew to the radar, at least initially, it would later become a very powerful mobilizing factor for the emergence of the religious right um, for the political mobilization of evangelical churches and others as well. But um, at, at the very beginning, it, it was not a much ballyhooed decision, at least, at least early on. Uh, depending on the quarters, um, it is true that um, it did sort of fly on the radar initially. Um, what you saw at the time that Roe was passed um, was sort of the, the slow, incremental sort of a liberalization of state laws um, regulating abortions. Um, although yep. at the time that Roe was passed, there were still a number of um, abortion bans and sort of strict regulations that were in place. Um, but the states were sort of as a whole sort of moving more towards um, sort of a more liberal a liberal approach. Um, basically, Roe sort of stepped into that democratic, that slow sort of churn of the democratic process um, and basically threw in its weight behind sort of the state interest, um, the, the interest of the mother. Okay, so that's Roe. Um, so... Mitch, yeah, you and on one thing on that Chris said too. I think one of the things that also I think bears remembering about when Roe was was decided was that Roe, for for a number of years, was not a particularly partisan issue as well. There were um, even as the issue of abortion became more and more central to American politics um, for a long time, it was very divided. You had a number of folks who uh, you know were in the Democratic Party who were who were pro life. And you had quite a few uh, pro-choice Republicans, and that this was a, this 
state, you know, this, this existed until you got to, you know, roughly the mid eighties, give or take, um, uh, in, in terms of, in terms of American politics. And so I think that's also one of the things to keep in mind in terms of how this has developed over the years. Yeah. And I'll just kind of jump in, uh, with one other point of context, which is just kind of some of the historical context as well, that by the early seventies, I mean, so, for such a long time, women's health issues weren't discussed, um, and there wasn't a lot of research behind them, and a lot of women's health issues were not uh, done or dealt with um, in uh, medical settings to begin with. But in the mid-20th century, we see a lot of movement for better reproductive health care for women um, and beginning to talk about women's health care needs in ways that publicly hadn't necessarily been discussed before and kind of think similarly to the last few years how the Me Too movement has given a lot of voice and visibility to the experience of sexual harassment. There's also kind of a historical consciousness raising that's taking place um, in the 60s and early 70s uh, such that reproductive health care becomes even an issue to discuss in the courts. That makes a lot of sense to me. In fact, I think it, uh, it's probably too broad to say that if it weren't for things like uh, the broad availability of contraception um, uh, and court cases surrounding that, we probably wouldn't have had the Roe decision in the way it was configured uh, in 1973. But, uh, but Matt, let's go back, let's head back to you. And um, where, uh, where did this get us? And where did we end up this in this term with this court? Okay, yeah, so, so that's good context for Roe. We should say something really briefly about the next really big um, Supreme Court decision, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Um, which came out. In and that was 1992. 1992. It was 1992. Um, so basically, Roe used a trimester framework for, um, for delineating um, essentially when the state has a compelling interest to protect the life of the fetus. Um, basically, Planned Parenthood v. Casey sort of threw out the trimester framework and it created a new standard. Um, and the new standard hinged on this concept of an undue burden. And so states could restrict um, abortions, um, but those restrictions could not um, impose an undue burden on a woman's right to seek an abortion. Um, and so, um, unfortunately, of course, undue burden, like a lot of terms um, that the Supreme Court has, you know, will use um, in its in its decisions, wasn't something that was uh, clearly defined. Um, and so, there wasn't a lot of guidance for the lower courts as they tried to figure out what particular state restrictions constitute an undue burden and which ones don't. Um, and so we've had a series of, of cases um, in the three decades since, essentially, in which the Supreme Court has had to weigh in on particular cases. So that brings us to um, the Mississippi. Have those, Matt, have those cases largely dealt with things like determining what undue burden means, or were they other kinds of ways of, of approaching the issue? Mitch might be able to weigh in on that um, as well. Um, my understanding is sometimes, yes, the, the undue burden question did arise um, and you would get circuit splits and, and sort of disagreement in the lower courts. And sometimes the Supreme Court would have to weigh in um, to figure out what constitutes um, an undue burden. Um, so that, yeah. that has never actually been fully settled. There are some things that seem to clearly be an undue burden for the Supreme Court and some things that don't. 
Um, but the fact that there's been ongoing sort of laws that have been passed, um, especially in red states, to sort of test the boundaries of what constitutes an mm. energy burden, the Mississippi law sort of falls falls within that. So, Mitch, I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's more or less right. I mean, the the, the major question, I mean, the, what 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 has made the issue particularly fraught. Um, is that, of course, you know, state legislatures, when they're trying to, you know, as Matt said, test the boundaries and see how far they can go with restricting abortion, will not come out and say, we are testing the boundaries to see how far, how much we can restrict abortion. Um, what they'll say is we are passing a law to, you know, try to enhance the medical safety of, of women and, uh, you know, children or whatever, you know, so that will be sort of the the context. And so then the court has to you know, that that's that's where it gets difficult for the court in terms of the undue burden test, because they have to say, OK, well, at what point is this a medical is what you're doing actually a, an issue of, of legitimate medical regulation? And at what point is this essentially a state trying to, you know, just impose burdens that, you know, to basically to prevent abortion? I mean, that's you know, that's what it boils down to. Yeah. Yeah. So. You have all of these different cases, um, and most recently in a 2020 case, um, there was um, a Supreme Court. This is the most recent abortion case, um, not counting the Texas law, um, but the right. most recent abortion case before this term that dealt with um, that dealt with sort of restrictions on abortion. Um, and in this case, um, Chief Justice John Roberts joins the four liberal justices. So this is before um, the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Roberts joins the four liberal justices to strike down a Louisiana law that required doctors who perform abortions to have admitting privileges in a nearby hospital. So this definitely falls within um, within the cases that, that Mitch and I are discussing. So that was June Medical Services v. Russo. Okay, so let's let's and was move that on. struck was that was that struck down on the basis of the KCD standard of undue burden that you mentioned, or were there other reasons for doing so? If I recall correctly. <laughs> Yes, it was. It had to do with the undue burden test um, and Casey. But I, 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 I recall, listen to our podcast from two years ago. <laughs> where we analyzed the case, so. Yeah, I, re- I recall the, the the political discussion at the time was basically that Louisiana was essentially doing this as a means of trying to limit um, abortion clinics that were providing abortions because the. Uh, Many the doctors who were who were performing them were not native to Louisiana. They were literally being flown in from other states, and so they did not have local admitting privileges. And this was a way of trying to basically make it extraordinarily difficult to perform the procedure in Louisiana. Um, so, if I recall, and again, go back and listen to our podcast, but I think the undue uh, burden standard did actually come into play uh, in that case. Right. I mean, all of these cases, you know, and in terms of, you know, applying the undue burden standard, I mean, part of it hinges in some ways, like on the facts on the ground. And that's true in June medical services. I mean, you know, it's if if this regulation goes into effect, you know, the court has to look at and say, okay, you know, what's this going to do? Well, it's probably going to close down, you know, the one abortion clinic that's there in Louisiana. And so therefore, you know, then that means that you have to travel out of state, things like that. and I mean, they also were looking at, and and this was also, you know, one of the issues. I can't remember if this came up in the opinion of the court, if this was just in the oral, arg- if this was just in the arguments and briefs. But uh, you know, one of the things of note is that, you know, admitting privileges is again one of these things where it's not a particularly um, medically necessary type of regulation. Um, you know, you don't need admitting privileges if there's an emergency and you need someone to go to the hospital, things like that. You know, this is something that's been sort of, 
you know, brought up as, as a way, you know, and the court determined essentially this has been brought up as a way to, you know, just to limit abortions. Okay, so that brings us to the Mississippi law, which um, Mississippi um, ultimately sought to defend um, in this case. So the Mm -hmm. Mississippi Gestational Age Act um, was struck down in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in 2019. Um, So last spring, if I recall, the Supreme Court agreed, granted cert, so that means they Um, agreed to hear the case. And we had oral arguments um, in that case um, back at the end of 2021. Um, And back when that happened, I think um, on this podcast, we had um, sort of a discussion of how how that went, at least briefly. Um, And so the Mississippi law, essentially what it does is it prohibits abortions after um, 15 weeks, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, and it argues, Mississippi is arguing that essentially the fetus experiences pain at 10 to 12 weeks. And so abortion after that point is inhumane. Um, and so the state has an interest essentially in, in protecting the fetus and preventing that. Um, and they set the 15 week mark, um, um, as the sort of the line of demarcation. Um, ultimately we know the Supreme court took the case. Um, and so the case of course is called Dobbs v. Jackson women's health. And so that can bring us to, um, a discussion of the different opinions in the case. Before we get to those opinions, um, I have to interject and I'll see if Sarah has anything to add on this as well. Um, over the course of my lifetime, uh, my life roughly runs concurrently with the Roe decision. Um, I, I was born a few years after Roe, but really with the um, uh, emergence of sort of the, the, the reaction, particularly on the right, and particularly amongst the religious right, and in particular amongst Catholic, but then eventually and quite notably evangelical religious right, um, uh, as a, a, that saw abortion and the pro-life standard as a mobilizing force uh, for politics within those communities. Uh, earlier, and I just have to throw this in, earlier parts of our century would have seen evangelicals as some of the least politically engaged, least politically mobilized groups of people in American society. And abortion, amongst other issues, it's not the only issue, it's not the only time this has been an issue. Uh, prohibition, I'm looking at you. Um, but, there, but this was a, a mobilizing interest for evangelicals to engage in politics. And it's one of the reasons why an enormous number of evangelicals, over 80% of evangelicals, uh, supported the Republican candidate uh, nominee for president, including Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020, um, was because of his promise to nominate pro-life judges to the Supreme Court. And he fulfilled that promise by getting three judicial nominees on the Supreme Court, which had the effect, uh, because he replaced Ruth Bader Ginsburg with Amy Coney Barrett, a um, uh, a conservative pro-life judge um, of moving the court from a roughly a, a five-four split with uh, sort of uh, whether it's Roberts or whether it was um, Kennedy playing the swing vote to a decidedly um, conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court, uh, and that's what sets up uh, the change in the decision here in Dobbs. Right. So I mean, it was really roughly a forty-year political movement, 50 years, but if we sort of think of evangelical engagement starting more in the 80s, um, really that, you know, to overturn Roe, which now has happened, and it is significant because, uh, like Chris, I, you know, I was born just a couple of years after 
grow. So it's sort of been a definitive theme of growing up Christian, growing up evangelical. Um, And I think for many evangelicals, it was seen and has been seen as a litmus test for, um, for judging the legitimacy of one's political positions as a Christian, whether it should have been or not. It's really been um, one of the definitive standards for thinking about Christians and politics in the last 50 years. Yeah, it's really hard to overstate the degree to which Roe has shaped the modern Republican coalition, right? Um, Because before um, sort of the Republican Party was mainly consisted of sort of economic conservatives, right? Um, And then Roe comes along um, and then um, some people in the Republican Party, uh, most famously Ronald Reagan, um, figured like, hey, we can actually bring these social conservatives, these moral sort of traditionalists into the Republican fold, um, sort of capturing them, not in a bad sense of the word, but bringing them into the coalition um, by actually making this um, sort of a core issue of the Republican platform. Um, and they did that very adroitly. Um, and that's what really brought, in some ways, evangelicals really into, um, into politics um, head on. Um, and, and that has a, had a really profound impact upon not only Republican, the Republican Party, but of course, U.S. electoral politics uh, ever since. And I'll allow my political scientists to jump in here and correct me if this analysis is flawed. But it seems to me, too, that there's been then a dramatic impact on the Democratic Party as well during this time period as starting, you know, sort of a, a, a what became then in opposition to the Republican Party, a defense of of women's rights and women's reproductive health care. And as more traditionalists are defending the Republican position, um, then the Democratic Party over time has become, uh, you know, also the home of uh, championing LGBTQ plus rights um, and uh, um, attempts to interpret the law in a contemporary context on issues that our founding fathers may not have ever imagined we would be discussing. So, so I think there's a, actually a dramatic impact on, on both parties as the story plays out. Yeah, if we're talking about causality, I don't think we want to say that uh, the Roe decision created polarization in America, nor did Reagan or um, Ralph Reed's decision to uh, weaponize Roe as a mobilizing feature of the Republican Party created polarization in America, but gosh darn, it didn't hurt. Um, it, see, it really uh, did seem to be one of those factors that was particularly useful um, in creating a basically depriving pro-life Democrats of a home in the Democratic Party of depriving pro-choice Republicans from a home in the Republican Party. There's all sorts of juicy historical counterfactuals we could discuss. Like, what if Roe hadn't happened? If the Supreme Court hadn't weighed in? What direction would have states gone? What would happen with public opinion on abortion um, and sort of abortion policy? And really, what would have would the evangelicals um, sort of really come fully into the Republican camp or not? Um, I don't know, but maybe that's a discussion for another time. So. <laughs> I, I do think it's useful just as one other sort of note, too, though. I mean, despite the fact that I, I, I absolutely agree that, I mean, Roe has, you know, it's difficult to overstate, I think, Roe's effect on polarization and, you know, its effect on the on the parties and the trajectories they've taken on issues. But with that said, you know, public opinion on abortion has has always been and continues to be pretty fraught. It's much more fraught than than people, you know, generally understand or give account for. You know, the number of sort of like pure 
you know, abortion should always or nearly always be illegal and abortion should always or nearly always be allowed. Um, folks are, you know, those are minorities, you know, the folks who fall in, if you combine those two camps, that's a minority, you know, um, you know, the folks who are on the sort of like pure pro-choice pro-life sides, you know, that's, that's not where most Americans are. Most Americans are somewhere in the middle. They think abortion should be legal sometimes, especially early in pregnancy, but then they think there should be restrictions, um, and things, you know, as, especially as you progress through pregnancy. So, you know, there's this really, in that way, it's sort of, you know, it's, it sort of makes, makes the issue even, even that much more difficult sort of to talk about. And, and, you know, and it also sort of illustrates, I think some degree, the, it does, I think, bring out the effect of Roe on polarization. I mean, just the fact that the public doesn't necessarily think this way naturally, and yet that's the way the debate has been framed and is understood in politics. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Mitch. Um, you know, because we, and I think that's, um, and we can talk about this more later, but I think there's ways in which um, ethics and law are related and, and yet they're separate. And our ethical thinking about abortion does not often seem to match up with the legal options that we have had over the last um, several decades. And I think that's going to actually um, uh, you know, that at the end of row now opens a door in a lot of ways for conversations that we haven't been having because they've been so narrowly defined by, um, by the, by the move to overturn row. Mm-hmm. I'd really like to, uh, footstop what, uh, Mitch said. So whenever you have big, you know, Supreme court decisions that come out, there's always some issue polling, um, that newspapers talk about, um, you know, they always show you the top line, but they never sort of describe in any nuance what the public really thinks. Um, so for the most part, um, people do favor abortion being available, but that's really only part of the story, right? So people's views on abortion are actually quite nuanced. So if you, um, look at polling that breaks down support for abortion in the different trimesters, there's quite a bit of support, very high support for abortion being available in the first trimester, but then it drops off, um, for midterm and especially late term abortions. Um, there's also a really interesting study, uh, done by a sociologist at Notre Dame who actually did a lot of, um, long form open-ended interviews with a variety of people um, from different political parties and ideological camps on the question of abortion. And it turns out that um, most Americans um, are actually quite uncomfortable talking about abortion. They don't really like abortion. Um, They think it should be available, but they think there should be some restrictions on it. Um, They don't view abortion as a positive good. Um, And so it turns out um, that, you know, other people have pointed this out, but um, that Bill Clinton sort of got it right when he sort of took the approach of abortion should be sort of safe, legal and rare. Um, that's what Americans like. Um, and that's what they're most comfortable with um, when thinking about sort of an overall sort of abortion regime in the United States. And so what this means is that currently um, sort of on the, the people who are really fired up about abortion, um, for whom abortion is a very salient sort of political issue. Um, these single issue voters, right, especially on, on the political right about abortion. Um, both sides um, are basically out of step with sort of the American public as a whole. Um, and so laws that, you know, want to open up abortions for all trimesters, which you see on the Democratic Party, which the Democratic Party has been trying to push completely out of step with the American public. Um, on the Republican side, attempts to sort of ban abortions altogether, especially attempts to sort of criminalize um, uh, abortions, for example, like those are severely out of step with the American public as a whole. So 
Unfortunately, of course, because partisans um, also happen to be the most politically engaged, happen to donate the most money, right, um, are the most consistent voters. And because of the primary system we have, it is these two sort of polls that have been sort of driving the conversation about this. I'm not saying this in any way to sort of say who's right and who's wrong, but it does demonstrate that we have um, an issue that is sort of hyper-polarized, perhaps more polarized than almost any other issue in American politics today. And I'll move us along by saying uh, that led, leads us to Dobbs. Uh, we put we have now a 6-3 conservative majority on the court, um, although justices try incredibly hard to avoid being litmus tested. Um, uh, there's nevertheless, the Federalist Society, amongst others, do try to provide lists of judges to, um, in this case, Donald Trump, to give him indications of who would be reliably conservative. Uh, on cases involving abortion, and that's exactly what we had here in Dobbs. So, what does this case? What does this case literally entail, and what does the decision mean? Mitch, you want to walk through legal reasoning, or you want me to take a first crack, and then you can come in and sweep up the the rubble behind my explanation? <laughs> you can go ahead. Okay. Okay. So, I'm going to give you sort of the top line, and then we'll go into Justice Lito's reasoning, um, and then we'll go from there. Great. So. Um, point out initially, so remember we had this unprecedented um, leak um, back in April in which the majority opinion that was drafted in February was leaked. Still don't know who did it, right? Um, but it turns out that Justice Alito's majority it opinion- was me. Is... <laughs> nice job, Chris. Thank you for pouring gasoline on the dumpster fire. That's American politics. Um, anyway, um, so it turns out that Alito's opinion is almost entirely unchanged. Um, there's a few additions, like responses to some of the other parts of the opinion, the other opinions, right? Um, and cleaning up a few things, but it's almost entirely unchanged. It also is interesting um, that this indicates that um, the justices who were on board with the majority, they didn't back down. Um, mm -hmm. And whatever you make about the legality, the morality of the decision, the fact that the justices weren't intimidated by threats of violence and by Supreme Court leaks. Remember, we had a, a assassination attest, attempt on Justice Kavanaugh, which almost actually was successful, right? The fact that the justices didn't back down in the face of that threat, I'd say is a good thing for institutions, regardless of what you think about the outcome. Um, as we said back when we discussed um, this leak um, back in the spring, um, Justice Alito's analysis is very much in keeping with the line of argument that was used during the oral argument, um, and really the sort of arguments that we've we've heard um, against Roe um, over the past um, couple of decades. So, so nothing new here, ultimately. Okay, so the summary is that abortion isn't mentioned in the Constitution, um, and abortion was not considered to be constitu a constitutionally uh, protected right at the time of the Constitution and the relevant constitutional amendments, namely the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court cannot make up new rights, um, and abortion is ultimately not a right that sort of exists um, under our sort of uh, ordered liberty um, that is supported by the Constitution. And so what we saw ultimately is a 6-3 decision to uphold the Mississippi law that prohibits abortion after 15 weeks. Um, and we saw um, a 5-4 split about sort of overturning um, the core sort of finding of Roe that there is a constitutional right to an abortion. Later, we'll unpack um, exactly um, where Chief Justice John Roberts um, sort of splits 
um, his views about what part of Roe should be struck down, what part should be overturned. Uh, but for the most part, 6-3 decision, Chief Justice supporting, upholding the Mississippi law. He wanted to uphold the Mississippi law while maintaining Roe, um, but you have five justices um, supporting um, overturning the Roe framework altogether. Um, and so that leads us into sort of the legal reasoning um, of the majority opinion, which was, of course, written by um, Justice Alito. We'll get into the Roberts concurrence um, in a little bit, and we'll briefly touch on the Thomas concurrence and the Kavanaugh concurrence, and of course, the joint dissent by Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor. Okay, so guys, feel free to interject on the ending. Okay, so the legal reasoning, I'll, I'll try to not delve too much into the weeds. The legal re- reasoning um, in the majority opinion is, again, that abortion isn't mentioned in the Constitution. And a right that is not explicitly granted in the Constitution can, of course, still be protected by the Constitution. Um, This is where you get the idea of unenumerated rights. Um, There are certain rights that aren't explicitly listed out in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights, um, but which are nonetheless sort of protected by the Constitution. We see this in the Ninth Amendment, um, which is at the end of the Bill of Rights. And of course, we have to figure out, well, which unnumerated rights sort of count, which ones are truly protected by the Constitution and which ones aren't. And essentially, that's where um, a lot of the debate hinges. So unenumerated rights um, can still be protected under the Constitution. And to understand which unenumerated rights are protected, we have to look to sort of the moral and legal tradition of the country. And ultimately, a court, a court's role isn't to sort of make up any sort of right and then Um, indicate that it is one of the unenumerated rights protected by the Constitution. An unenumerated right has to be sort of a logical extension of an enumerated right. So, for example, a right to freedom of speech um, or religious expression, right? So a logical Mm -hmm. extension of a right that is explicitly spelled out, or an unenumerated right has to be rooted in the legal tradition during the time of the passage of the constitutional amendment that is the purported basis of that right. So in Roe, the constitutional amendment that is doing sort of the heavy lifting is the 14th Amendment, and it's specifically the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Um, and Thomas is going to talk about that, but we'll, we'll get to that in just a little bit. And so what Alita goes Matt, on to say- can I ask you a quick question? Mm-hmm. So my quick question for you is the way you just described that, this idea that for unenumerated rights to be protected by the constitution, they either have to directly link to current rights or to rights that are enumerated, or they have to be thought of as connected when the, for when an amendment passed, right? Connected to those kinds of enumerated rights. Would that be considered sort of a, um, uh, and I'm blanking on the word here, Mitch, help me out. Uh, the, um, the, the kind of the more conservative uh, way of interpreting the constitution uh, an, orig- an originalist, there we go, an originalist interpretation of the Constitution. Is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, this is a very clear, obvious um, example of originalist thinking. Um, you know, originalism is basically the theory that the Constitution should be interpreted and understood, um, you know, in the way it should basically be interpreted in the way that it was understood at the time it was written. So gotcha. you look at, you know, in terms of the original text of the Constitution pre-amendments, you say, okay, what did this mean to the, you know, at the time that it was that it was adopted in 1787, and of course, you know the early early republic, basically. Um, and then you say for the amendments, you know, what did they mean at the time they were adopted? So you know, the, great. Okay, the, just making sure I was drawing that. Like, you know, 18, 1868. So, yeah, great. 
Good, right. And so the, the phrase that is often used here is the court needs to look to uh, the text history and tradition, right, of, of sort of jurisprudence um, in the United States. Um, and so basically, of course, Roe, what it does is it grounds the right to an abortion in the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment, of course, was one of the three um, core sort of post-Civil War amendments that were passed as a precondition for um, the Southern states to sort of rejoin the Union, right, and, and be sort of reseated in Congress. Um, and, and essentially, um, sort of the idea behind, behind the Roe framework is ultimately sort of the due process clause um, of the 14th Amendment basically um, sort of guarantees sort of this broad sort of sphere of liberty. Um, and this liberty ultimately sort of encompasses um, a lot of different things like the right to privacy. You get that sort of spelled out in a really important case before Roe Ro and a case called Griswold v. Connecticut, um, which serves as a basis um, for sort of this idea that ultimately the spheres of liberty and the privacy that, that it entails, right, um, is ultimately the basis for um, a woman's right um, to have an abortion um, if she chooses. Now, one of the things that Alito sort of wails on, um, he comes back to you repeatedly, um, is he talks about this idea of ordered liberty um, and this idea of how a state is supposed to sort of decide um, decide whenever there's different there's different interests of different parties, right? And so he says, I'm actually going to quote him here briefly. We are not a country merely excuse me, we are not a country of merely liberty, but he says, we are a country of ordered liberty that, quote, sets limits and defines boundaries between competing interests. In Roe, the court ultimately favored the interest of the woman over the, quote, potential life of the fetus. Um, and what it did is it basically um, decided on behalf of the states um, or struck down laws from the states that wanted to sort of protect the life of the fetus um, and consider the life of the fetus as sort of um, something that should be protected under sort of the state interest. Um, and basically what Alito says um, and also what Kavanaugh says in his concurrence is ultimately that it's not the court's job to ultimately decide on behalf of the states um, which way states should come down, right? Whether or not a state should um, sort of tend to land more on the side of supporting the competing interest of either the woman on one hand or the fetus on the other hand. Um, and so Lita goes on to talk about how um, at the time of the ratification of the 14th Amendment, abortion was not considered to be sort of a core right. Um, abortion was not rooted in the American legal tradition. Um, and even up to the, the day that the Roe decision was handed down, um, there was a very long, there were a lot of laws that were in place that either banned abortion or sort of heavily restricted it. So the idea that the 14th Amendment sort of countenanced um, a right to an abortion um, and would necessarily involve sort of striking down state laws that, um, that restricted abortion, that idea is sort of a legal fiction, in other words. Um, and it turns out that um, there's a lot of um, legal experts um, and judges and justices actually who have said that even though they support the right to abortion, think that Roe represents some really flawed legal reasoning. Um, even um, Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, back when she was a judge, actually gave an interesting lecture and wrote a law review article talking about how ultimately um, Roe is breathtaking and sort of the power that it gives the courts to ultimately sort of weigh in and sort of define, basically make up a right 
that does not exist in the Constitution. So we could unpack a little bit more and obviously um, consider also what the dissent has to say in response. But I've been talking for a while, so I'll let, let some of the rest of you jump in. Yeah, I mean, I'll start by. Yeah, please, okay. Mitch, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I think, you know, in looking at, you know, Alito's, Alito's reasoning, I mean, you know, it's, it basically boils down to, I mean, and he, as Matt said, he comes back to this over and over again. I mean, basically the right's not spelled out in the constitution. If a right's not spelled out in the constitution, you have to find it in, you know, the understanding of, you know, of the text that when at the time it was written. Um, and so then you go back to, you know, in this case, 1868, and you say, you know, did, was this understood at that time? Um, you know, he argues it's not. And so therefore, and so therefore there's no right. Um, you know, I know we'll talk later, you know, we'll get into the, the, the argument of the dissent, right. Who argues, of course, that this is, you know, a fundamentally flawed way of, um, interpreting the constitution. Um, but, uh, but, but basically that's, that's, that's what Alito is coming back to. And I will say, I mean, in terms of the strength of that line of reasoning, I mean, it really comes down to, you know, you don't want, and this is what justices, you know, pretty much all justices will say, you don't want the idea, you know, the interpretation of the constitution and for rights themselves to be simply at the whim of justices. You want ultimately for there to be some kind, you know, we talk about this idea of, you know, the rule of law. And so you want there to be something at least somewhat objective, something solid at the bottom here. So it's not just justices wake up in the morning, you know, and they happen to eat the bad Wheaties this morning. And so, you know, now you no longer have, you know, this particular right, you know, that's what you want to avoid. You want something, you know, you want there to be a there, there. And so for Alito, right, he says the there, there <laughs> is the understanding uh, of the text at the time it was written. And he says, you know, this, that's his way of essentially trying to remain in this sense, neutral is saying, you know, I, you know, if we, if we can't find it in this neutral historical analysis, well, then it shouldn't, shouldn't be there. Um, and there is, a, you know, again, I mean, just to say, you know, that's the, the strength of that type of reasoning is that it gives you, you know, that sort of touchstone, right. That, 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 uh, that that that's that's there um you know yeah and we'll talk more about you know rejoinders to that maybe later but but that's that i think is important to emphasize because i think it kind of gets lost in some ways like you know in reading alito's opinion i think a lay person coming to this for the first time you would read it and you would just see him like constantly going back to like history and tradition and be like okay well who cares like you know i think it's kind of easy to sort of look at that and just sort of be like you know why does history and tradition matter so much like what you know what what gives but that's what gives like what gives is you know it's the seeking for something objective and that's that's the that's the root, and again, that's also the root of you know just the entire originalist um, philosophy and, and and view of interpreting the Constitution. Yeah, and ultimately, in some ways, I mean, yeah, Roe is about abortion. Um, and we shouldn't sort of downplay that. Obviously, very consequential in many profound ways. Roe, in some ways, is more about what the role of the court system is. And what the role of justices is. In some ways, yeah, Roe is sweeping in its implications, but it's in some ways a very sort of narrow decision. It's basically saying um, the people sort of ultimately get to decide through their elected representatives and even through amending the constitution if they decide so decide, get to decide um, what are the core rights um, in our political system. Um, and if the people and their elected representatives um, want to sort of add you know, add new rights um, sort of explicitly, they are more than welcome to do so. Um, 
it's a huge problem when sort of justices like Mick said sort of wake up one day and decide that we want to sort of create rights sort of in keeping with our sort of preferred policy outcomes, right? Um, and to do so without any reference to sort of where the people have spoken clearly, um, either through the constitution or through, for example, federal law. Um, and so ultimately what this case is about is what is the role of the court and how can the court best sort of uphold the rule of law? Basically, when non-democratic institutions make sweeping policy decisions that overturn the democratic process, what the system does is it becomes more oligarchical. Um, the role of the court is not to create new rights of out of whole cloth, to, but to uphold the rights that are clearly within the parameters of the law, right? And that's ultimately what Justice Alito is saying. And then when the court weighs in on rights with disregard for the law, basically what you get is you get really bad decisions sometimes. Um, and the court has erred um, uh, quite fabulously in a number of different cases. Dred Scott, um, Plessy v. Ferguson, probably being the primary example. And so what we don't want the court to do is sort of wield sort of raw judicial power, a term that's often used in reference to Roe. What we want the court to do is to try to adjudicate um, in those cases in which there's disputes um, between uh, competing interests and to do so in a way that sort of clearly refers to where rights are, um, if not clearly an extinction of rights explicitly granted to the constitution, at least rights that have been sort of in broad keeping with sort of um, the, the legal and moral tradition of the country, right? Obviously you can poke holes in sort of, um, and point out the limits of uh, sort of an originalist sort of thinking, um, but for an originalist like Lido, and I, I find this compelling because I'm also institutionalist, um, what's really important at the end of the day is you want a court that is sort of restrained um, in the role that it has for itself. And I think in some ways, um, the Roe decision um, is sort of in keeping with um, with the court's sort of general trajectory over the past 10 years or so of trying to sort of um, pull itself out of some of, you know, basically making national policy. Doesn't mean that it always does that. Doesn't it mean does. that they're always consistent, right? Um, and we could we can talk about a number of different cases. We're going to talk about more cases on future podcasts. But but I think this is sort of um, a new trajectory that the court has been uh, taking for itself. And we can talk about whether that's good or bad. Um, but I think that's something that we, we've seen, and, and the Roe decision is a part of that trajectory. I, I do want to say too. I mean, one of the things, and this gets, I think, this gets at. I, th I think, you know, what, what Matt has said is absolutely right in terms of this decision in many ways is sort of a debate. And you can see that with the dissent and with Alita's opinion or what the role of the court is. And, uh, you know, the dissent makes it very clear. I know I don't we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. to We'll get to the dissent when we get to it. But um, but, you know, one of the the core assertion, I mean, of the dissent is essentially that actually the reverse is true, right? Is that the majority in Dobbs here is in fact engaged in, you know, to use that, I, I believe that, I think they even use the phrase raw judicial power, right? That they are not engaged in objective um, assessments of the constitution and precedent and things like that, that they themselves are in fact, um, you know, engaged in purely asserting their own policy preferences and writing those into the law. Um, you know, and so that's essentially, you know, the, the core argument. So again, just coming back to, you know, the fundamental disagreement is going to be, how do you find that objective there, there for the law, <laughs> you know, um, for Alito, he says, you look at history for the dissent, they're going to make a different argument that, you know, we'll get to down, down the line. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the dissent argues that this, all this talk about history and tradition is itself, um, you know, basically a smokescreen or even kind of a selective way of, 
um, a, you know, of Alito basically writing his own opinions um, into the law. Um, and the other thing, though, I think that probably, well, Sarah, sorry, I don't want to keep going a few of something else. The, the other thing I wanted to bring up, and I think this is sort of the next step, right, in thinking about this, is thinking about Alito makes a long argument, and I think this is sort of critical to it, in thinking about stare decisis. And, you know, stare decisis is the, you know, a central doctrine uh, or practice of the of, of the court in that it which, which Mitch is going to define right now. <laughs> yes, exactly. Stare decisis means, uh, you know, in, in sort of, you know, for, you know, for, uh, basically it, it, the, the interpretation basically means let the decision stand. And the meaning of that doctrine is essentially previous precedents, previous decisions by the court, things that they've decided in the past um, should, when at all possible, control current cases and current controversies. So if the court has decided something in the past, that you know should, should essentially determine things in the future. And the justification for that, again, gets back to this idea of the rule of law. You want the law itself to be deciding. You don't want the justices to sort of wake up in the morning and say, here's how I feel. You want them to say, I'm making this decision because of some really good reason grounded in past um, court cases or, you know, the explicit text of the Constitution itself. You know, you want there to be some kind of law there that they're deciding on, not just based on their own opinions. And so stare decisis is one of the key ways that the court advances that, that they basically say, you know, we're not going to um, make quick decisions. We're, we're just going to rely on what we've done in the past if it's at all possible. Um, and it's in fact that, you know, Again, we'll get to the Roberts case, but, you know, it's there, you know, that, well, it's really there that Roberts and the dissent, you know, say that the court has especially erred um, in this case. Um, but Alito goes into great lengths and is at pains to, to try to argue um, essentially that, the, you know, that this is an appropriate um, time to essentially ignore stare decisis. Um, you know, he basically says, you know, and he's, you know, he says very explicitly, he says, you know, this row was egregiously wrong from the beginning um, and that it therefore is perfectly fine to, to overturn, um, you know, even though this is, you know, contravenes past, past precedent. Sarah, I find that remarkable. Um, and I, I'm trying to think how I want to ask you about this, but I guess I'll start by saying this. In the sense that we've just heard Matt and Mitch lay out this very structured argument for why Alito relies on originalist reading of the 14th Amendment um, to basically conclude that there is not a constitutionally guaranteed right to an abortion listed in the Constitution. Not that there couldn't be one. You are welcome to make a new amendment if you like, but there isn't one right now. And therefore, the, the row can't stand because it can't guarantee something that doesn't exist um, currently. And yet, I can't shake the feeling that what we what we what Alito has done is play a very elaborate game to allow him to end up with the moral decision he wanted to make in the first place. Um, and that's how many Americans might read the work of the court as well. Um, is there? I, 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 and there's another question, and I'm trying to end with a question. I'm sorry, but is there is there a sense in which there is a parallel line of of of, of evolved moral or ethical thinking, which is run parallel to this legal argument that's kept pace since Roe was decided 40 years ago. Yeah, you know, I, I find it I find it fascinating. And, and, and I will say I am not a constitutional law scholar by any means, but there are 
multiple other legitimate ways of doing constitutional interpretation that give you a there there that's not the originalist way of doing it. And um, this is a limited analogy, but uh, I was actually talking with a colleague who's a theologian the other day um, about a similarity between um, a more fundamentalist reading of scripture and an originalist reading of the constitution as applied to other ways of reading scripture that are more contextual or that are thinking of scripture as a living document, because what someone would have said in 30 AD about an issue doesn't necessarily apply in the same way in the context of how we read the same passage of scripture in 2022, which is not to say you are, have to take away the foundation altogether and anything goes in a reading of scripture, but that there are ways of interpreting and adapting the core principles to the present that wouldn't match an originalist way. And so I think when when I read um, the dissent, and, and again, uh, we can get more into the legal re- reasoning of the dissent, but when I read the dissent, it's very much the argument of um, there are fundamental rights to privacy, to decisions about one's body that are rooted in constitutionalist thinking, even if the um, justices in the, you know, or the, um, even if people weren't thinking that way in, you know, the mid-1800s. And we might say, of course, they weren't thinking that way in the mid-1800s because no one was talking about or thinking about Mm -hmm. women's reproductive health care in that way. What it meant to have an abortion in 1850 is fundamentally different in many ways than what it would mean to have an abortion in in 2022. And so um, so there's very much a challenge to, to the originalist reading to say it doesn't actually apply in the same way now. And then that does raise suspicions about, um, about the justices, you know, Alito kind of deciding what he wanted to do and then making the law or the legal reasoning fit that. I guess I am troubled uh, by and c- combining what Sarah just said with what Mitch said just a moment ago, which is this this this, um, this standard of stare decisis, right? Um, and making the decision of when and whether that will stand, and basically making the case that Roe was founded on bad uh, on bad precedent, and so we should remove that. Um, I understand from a you know from a purely institutional and, and like Madam, I'm institutionalist. But from a particular, from a pure institutionalist perspective, you need to have enough flexibility in institutions to allow us to to admit previous mistakes. Um, otherwise, we'd still have Plessy versus Ferguson, right? And so that seems like it seems good that we got rid of uh, segregation of schools. Um, and yet, it seems it seems as though we should be very skeptical when we sort of make these kinds of uh, decisions whether to abandon uh, what to abandon stare decisis, right? Um, and in this case, on both sides of this issue, because 
again, I'm not a constitutional rule scholar either, but I'm able to observe in successive presidencies how presidents, whether they're on the um, Democratic side or the Republican side, go to great lengths to read judicial tea leaves to figure out if someone is going to be um, broadly supportive of of a pro-life stance or broadly supportive of a pro-choice stance, even if they can't ask them that. Um, And so it's, it's hard to give credence to this as a purely originalist line of legal doctrine when that seems to be the, the overwhelming force points in the policy direction. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. I mean, even the fact that we have Amy Coney Barrett on the court instead of Merrick Garland sort of leads into this policy driven play of politics for uh, political reasons which then calls into the neutrality of the legal reasoning of the members of the court. And, and both parties are guilty, I think, of that, uh, the, of politicizing court appointees in that way on this issue. At the same time, I, mean, I do have sympathy. Oh, go, go ahead, Mitch. No, I was just going to say, I just wanted to say, I mean, I do think, you know, we're, again, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm again. I'm very. I, I mean, I'll be. You know, I'll, I'll obviously. You know, uh, just like I gave. You know, did my best to sort of like give the what I think is the strength. You know, of the originalist argument. You know, I'll give the strength of the pragmatist here later, probably, um, or Matt will, or somebody will. Um, but uh, you know, but basically, um, you know, dis- despite the fact that I that I put a lot of stock in that, and I think it's really important that we have justices that are attempting to find something, right? You know, I think, I think if nothing else, right, I mean, it's very important for the rule of law that we have justices that are interested in doing something, you know, and at least trying (laughs) in some sense to apply a method that isn't just, you know, this is what I think this morning. Um, And the bad uh, Wheaties argument, which I'll refer to it as. Right, exactly. Um, So, you know, so so I think that's really important. Um, But, but I do think you're right, Sarah. I mean, I think the, one of the big problems the court is facing, and I think, you know, while the court usually probably shouldn't think too much about this, you know, there is the question of, you know, what is the perception of, of the court going to be and what does that do to the legitimacy of the court long-term? Um, you know, and I do think that's been damaged, you know, again, you know, I think it's cliche, but it is, you know, true, you know, that there has been damage to this, you know, by, by both parties, you know, you, this in some ways began with Bork back in, what was it, 86 or whatever, 1986, um, you know, the um, refusal to, to confirm him to the court. But then, you know, I mean, I don't think there's any exaggeration to say this has been, you know, escalated pretty substantially, you know, in the last, in recent years, particularly with, uh, you know, Senator Mitch McConnell's maneuvering to not even consider um, President Obama's, you know, appointment and then rushing um, Amy, Amy Cooney Barrett's appointment through um, at the end of Donald Trump's term. Um, so, you know, so I think, you know, it's pretty, and, and I think part of what lends that to itself is I think it's actually very obvious in reading, even just in reading Dobbs, what the outcome would have been had that not happened. Um, you know, had that not happened, the very obvious central vote would have been Roberts. We know exactly what Roberts would have been done because he told us in the concurrence. <laughs> Therefore, you know, we know, you know, in that way, you know, what, what would have happened, which, you know, basically if Roberts has had, had his way, Mississippi's law would have been upheld, but Roe would not have been, you know, fully overturned. So in that sense, you know, you have this very 
problematic. You know, this is the this is the real problem that's come with the politicization of the court and the maneuvering that McConnell did. You know, as you now have. Um, you know, it, it undermines, right? No matter how eloquent or solid or whatever else you want, you know, that one thinks Alito's reasoning is, you know, even if we grant that it's 100% rock solid and nothing can be said against it, um, you know, it undermines the legitimacy of it to say, well, but that wouldn't have been the reasoning of the court had the Senate and president done something different. Yep. Let's talk a little bit more about the Roberts opinion um, or the response. Concurrence. Yeah. Concurrence. <laughs> I knew that was Let's talk a little bit more about that because I think that holds some interesting possibilities of where laws and courts might go post the Dobbs decision um, in thinking about just because Roe is overturned, that doesn't mean that now abortion is going to become illegal everywhere or that it will never become a constitutional right right again. Um, So I don't know, uh, Mitch or Matt, do you want to talk about the Roberts concurrence? Go for it, Mitch. Sure. So, I mean, Robert's, you know, Robert, the the Robert's concurrence is sort of interesting and it's sort of of two minds in some ways. I mean, the Robert's concurrence on the one hand sort of reiterates um, and sort of agrees with, or, you know, to use Matt's colorful phrase, sort of like foot stomps, (laughs) some of Alito's, you know, critiques of Roe. I mean, he basically says like, you know, the re, you know, just as, you know, Alito sort of meticulously goes through and sort of pulls apart the reasoning of Roe and says, you know, this didn't make sense. And a lot of people have said it doesn't make sense. And, you know, I mean, there are people who I I think do argue in favor of the reasoning of Roe, but my sense is very much that, you know, there's, there's plenty of people, even people who are in favor of, of, of abortion rights who think Roe was, you know, not particularly shiny. And, you know, Roberts basically goes along and, and, and agrees with that. You know, he, he also reiterates a number of reasons for why he thinks Roe was, was wrongly decided. But <laughs> he then turns around and says, on the principle of stare decisis, primarily, he says the court should not have overturned um, Roe and Casey, particularly because, and I think for Roberts, what matters even more, like Alito spends a lot of time basically saying, um, spends a lot of time basically saying Roe was wrongly decided. And then his reasoning goes, and because Roe was wrongly decided, therefore, Casey made a mistake in not reconsidering the reasoning of Roe. But Robert yeah. says that's actually not how constitutional law works. Constitutional law works as a process over time. Therefore, because we have a reaffirmation of Roe in Casey, that strengthens the stare decisis argument much more than Alito is willing to, to admit. And so Roberts's argument is because you have not one, but actually two um, major precedents that, that, uh, that support abortion rights, therefore the court should move if nothing else, very, very slowly and cautiously. And I do want to say, I think one of the things that I actually, you know, looking at, looking at Roberts is there's a lot, there's a lot of of interesting quotes one could pull, but, but I do think there's one, I do want to like read one short excerpt here from Roberts's concurrence, because I think it says something interesting just about, again, just about what we think the rule of law means and what it means to properly engage in, you know, this, this sort of like this, this reasoning about having law and not, not just following justice's opinions. I think that's Roberts's real concern here. So what he says is, This is towards the very end. I think it's on page 147 if you have the PDF. But um, Robert says, both the court's opinion and the dissent display a relentless freedom from doubt on the legal issue that I cannot share. I am not sure, for example, that a ban on terminating a pregnancy from the moment of conception must be treated 
must be treated the same under the Constitution as a ban after 15 weeks. A thoughtful member of this court once counseled that the difficulty of a question admonishes us to observe the wise limitation of our function and to confine ourselves to deciding only what is necessary in the disposition of the immediate case. And so he goes on, you know, he basically says, you know, the court didn't need to go any further than just deciding on the Mississippi case. Like it just needed to say whether the Mississippi law could stand or fall. It didn't need to say anything else. And Roberts is basically saying, you know, basically this is an argument for, um, you know, judicial humility. Um, you know, it's basically saying, and, and, and again, even, the, you know, Roberts, it, what's interesting is Roberts is basically saying, I think, you know, in his own reasoning, he says, I think what the majority did was right. <laughs> you know, he's saying, I think Roe was wrongly decided. It probably should be overturned. But then he turns around and says, basically, but I don't trust myself. Like, you know, he basically says, I think it's important for just justices to not think that they have it all figured out. Um, and so, you know, that's an interesting take, I think, on the, on the rule of law. I also think, I mean, subtly, it's also, I mean, just to come back to Matt's argument earlier, which I think is absolutely right in, in interpreting Alito, I think it is also a subtle critique of Roe itself um, in that, you know, I think Roberts would also say that Roe, Roe did not follow that reasoning either. <laughs> Roe was not an exercise in, in judicial humility um, in, in, that, in that sense either. But nonetheless, Roberts says, you know, he thinks that's the way that justices should, should proceed anyway. Yeah, I'll make a few points on Roberts. Um, I, I also um, found that, I mean, it's the, the part that you read, Mitch, is basically at the very end of his um, relatively short concurrence. And I, I thought it was fabulous um, in the sort of sort of epistemic humility that I think we all try to embody. Um, I, I do think it's worth pushing back, um, and others have pushed back on this as well. Essentially, you know, what Roberts is trying to do is like, how can I find a way to uphold the Mississippi law and sort of also sort of keep row. Um, how can I have both? Um, I mean, this is the most Robertsy sort of like thing that you could ever find, right? I mean, this is classic Roberts um, doing what doing what he does well, right? Um, but the problem is um, ultimately, um, you know, Roberts would have to come up with some sort of rationale if we're saying like, well, how can I keep row, the row, you know, the core, you know, constitutional right um, to an abortion and sort of, you know, uphold sort of the Mississippi law. How can I do both? I would have to basically create some sort of new standard, right? And he's like, well, we should chunk viability, right? He wants to get rid of that part of Roe, but then he'd have to come up with some sort of other standard to do, and, and not an undue burden standard. You have to come up with something else to sort of figure out like, well, mm -hmm. at what point does, you know, a law sort of cross the line and impinging on this, right? Essentially taking his middle approach um, would require basically creating another sort of made up standard, right? So part of Roe made up a standard out of nowhere. Casey did the same thing. And if the court were to take Robert's approach, they would essentially have to do that as well. Um, and so there's really something, of course, compelling, I think, about Roberts wanting to avoid making sort of a, a big shift um, and trying to make sort of incremental changes. Um, on the other hand, um, basically, at some point, and I, I think this is maybe why the five justices decided to sort of go for it. At some point, the court is going to have to sort of bite the bullet, stop kicking the can down the road, and basically decide, like, at some point, if we're going to get rid of this thing, we're going to have to get rid of it and not try to chip away at it. And every time we chip away, sort of creating a whole new standard, sort of whole cloth, right? Because that is part of the problem with Roe at its core is that it's just made up, right? And ultimate sort of judicial restraint is basically to undo um, the opinion that started it all. Say like the court wrongly inserted itself 
um, into a very sort of controversial moral question um, on which there is profound disagreement. Um, and we basically have to undo that and sort of step back out of that process. And of course, that's going to change. That's going to create all sorts of other problems, right? That's going to be very controversial, but that's ultimately what the court has to do. Um, because ultimately what Roe did um, is Roe ultimately in sort of Alito's um, in Alito's terms, it ultimately was political, right? It basically, the court inserted itself into politics with Roe and it basically decided um, basically that the constitution requires the states to regard the fetus as lacking a most basic human right um, and sort of saying, and there can't be any sort of legitimate disagreement among people in the states about that. And the court sort of weighed in and stipulated that this is the way it's going to be on a question that, you know, of great sort of moral controversy and a question in which there was no sort of clear, um, clear tradition to look to, right? So even if we sort of agree with the dissent that, um, that originalism has limits, and I think they make some really good points on that, right? Um, I think you can sort of find, find in the text history and tradition, the things that you want to find, right? But even if you sort of set aside, I think some of those arguments from originalism, you can sort of look to like, what is the role of the court um, within sort of a constitutional system and think about, you know, what is the role of the court in addressing sort of very controversial competing rights claims in which there is not a consensus, in which there is not a clear constitutional framework, um, and there's not a significant sort of clear historical precedent. What do you do in those cases? And Alito is basically saying like, the people and their elected representatives, they should weigh in, they should make those decisions. Um, and the court basically shouldn't step in and make that sort of level of policy. That's what Roe did, and we're trying to undo that, right? Yep. I think that's that's the point he's trying to make. And that's where he would sort of push back on, on Roberts. I think I think that's so right. We, oh, sorry, yeah. I was well, just I was saying, saying, uh, go ahead, Mitch. I think, I think, I think, I think, I think there's a lot to that. I, the, but I do think, I mean, one of the things that I think is, is notable and, and the dissent brings this up to some degree, but I think, I can't remember if Roberts does or not, but one of the things that is notable, um, you know, and I, and I think this is, and I do think this is where the dissent, I know the dissent brings this up has, has, you know, does, does correctly, I think, critique uh, Alito's argument when he's talking about um, this, the questions of stare decisis, you know, Alito has this long footnote and he spends a lot of time sort of pushing on the idea of, you know, Brown versus Board of Education overturned a precedent. So it's okay to overturn precedents. You know, it's important that the court do that. But one of the things that's notable is that, you know, prior to Brown, and again, we can debate whether this is whether the court should operate this way, but it nonetheless is true that through history, the court usually has operated in this way where, you know, Brown didn't come out of nowhere. You know, Brown was also itself the result of a lot of very small incremental decisions that preceded it. You know, there were a number of cases throughout the 1930s and 40s where the court basically said, well, we still want to uphold separate but equal but you can't apply it that way. And then, no, you can't apply it that way. And, you know, we're going to say that it doesn't apply here either, you know, and, you know, you have these sort of like constant, you know, in this way, you know, we'd sort of say uncharitably, perhaps, you know, this is, they're making up new standards as they go, but nonetheless, right. They were essentially doing exactly what Roberts is saying the court should do here. Right. They were saying, we're going to do this. And then when they finally get to Brown versus board of education, then they say like, okay, look, 
we've made, you know, we've done, we've been doing this for 20 years now, and this is just wrong. Like we can now say conclusively for all the reasoning the court has done through, you know, all these other cases that this just doesn't work. And it's, you know, it was wrong to begin with. And I think that's what Roberts essentially wants. Right. And I think that's where Alito is perhaps wrong. Right. I mean, I'll just say, I mean, I think Alito is too cavalier when he is essentially characterizing how stare decisis works and how the court has treated past precedents um, before, um, you know, where he basically is sort of like, you know, the, uh, you know, in reading Alito, it sort of comes off as like the court throws the tables over all the time. Like here's, you know, 50 cases. Right. And it's like, that moves too fast, right? That's not really what the court has done. And even if you want to go in that direction, right? I mean, even if you want to say like, look, Plessy was wrong, of course, segregation was horrible and it was wrong, but from a pure constitutional interpretation, right? A way of thinking about the rule of law and the way the court has operated. um, In some ways, I think Roberts would say the court did the right thing, right? The court did the right thing in not just immediately throwing everything over, right? Because then you have this threat of the rule of law. And I think that Roberts is saying that's exactly what the court should be concerned about here, right? That the court is being overly cavalier um, in, in sort of throwing the tables over without incremental precedent. Right. Because now we're entering into the situation where it's going to be left um, up to the states, which is polarized and politicized in many ways, depending on where you live, right? We have uh, 20 states where abortion is legally predict, uh, protected, and we have uh, 16 states where it's um, prohibited or will be soon, and then we've got some middle states of restrictions or uh, it's legal for now, but basically who the lawmakers are will decide. And then, you know, for women, it raises all sorts of of challenging questions of um, where you happen to live determines what your rights are. And that seems morally problematic. Um, And uh, and uh, if your state bans abortion and you travel to another state where it's legal to have one, can you be, should you be prosecuted when you return to your state? Can one state bring charges against a physician in another state where it's legal? So by by moving very quickly, the court in a lot of ways has kind of created a a mess that stare decisis in in terms of trying to provide some amount of stability would have protected against. But the other side of that is maybe rightfully so it pushes ultimately the question of abortion rights back to the people and their elected officials rather than the courts. And so it, it's kind of saying, all right, if we want this to be a protected right, we need a better law for it than we previously had established under Roe. I will say one of the things that I think is intention here. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, I was actually, uh, I was, I was, I was recently reading a, a, a book um, that, uh, what was the book? What was the book? Um, what, what, uh, what universities owe democracy and uh, which is not about this issue at all. <laughs> um, it's a wonderful book, by the way, um, everyone should read it. Um, but at any rate, uh, one of the things that, that was emphasized in that book though, that I think does bear directly on this was that there's a deep tension in American politics between democracy and liberalism. 
Um, and when I say liberalism, I don't mean, you know, I've, as usual, and when talking about this, I have to, for the lay person, when I say liberalism, I don't mean liberalism as in the Democratic Party and Barack Obama and, you know, Hillary Clinton and whatever, right? You know, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about liberalism as the tradition going back to John Locke that basically prioritizes individual liberty and personal rights and things like that. Okay. So there's a tension between liberalism and democracy against small d democracy where people vote to decide. And I think that really comes out here. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, this is this this is raising, right, is this, this question of, you know, what is the balance essentially in American politics between liberalism and democracy, you know, and um, on the one hand, you know, it's, it, we all want there to be, pers- you know, particular rights that are protected, right? I mean, you know, we can sort of imagine certain things in our life that we don't think government ought to interfere in, um, no matter what the majority thinks. Um, and then on the other hand, there's also a really important place, right, for the people to be deciding as far as what that means and how far, what government is doing, what it can regulate, things like that, you know, and so, you know, that, 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 that tension, um, you know, of liberalism and democracy is in some ways, you know, what's really accented here as well, right? I mean, the court has essentially said in this decision, right, in Dobbs, the court has basically said, we're going to side more on, we're going to favor democracy, right, more than we are liberalism. Um, and so that's essentially where, you know, where this, where this leaves us. And I think that's where, you know, this, this is where sort of the consternation comes in, right? You know, to what extent do we trust democracy? Um, you know, and that's, you know, and that's, it's, it's a difficult question. You know, I think we all want to trust democracy to some degree. <laughs> Nobody wants to say, you know, the will of the people means nothing. Um, but uh, on the other hand, um, where does it, where does it stop and where does it go? And I think, you know, that's, that's again, why this is so, part of the reason why this is so fraught. So we want to move on. One of the things, sorry, if, <laughs> if, if no one else has something to say, here's where I'll move forward next. Um, so <laughs> I'll grab the ball. Um, so the ball next, I think, so, so we've talked about Roberts, like what Roberts would want to do. But I think the other thing that's important, right, there are two other concurrences, and I think we should probably think about what they have to say before thinking about um, the dissent. So one of the um, concurrences is the Thomas concurrence. And the, the Thomas concurrence, you know, I think, you know, I, th- I think the Thomas concurrence in some ways um, sets out, you know, basically, I mean, well, I don't think, I mean, I, th- I think it's indisputable, right? It sets out an agenda, um, you know, for basically where he thinks the court should go from here. I mean, he explicitly sets out and says, you know, the court today, you know, he says, you know, he concurs because he says, you know, the court's done the right thing um, in overturning um, you know, and over and overturning uh, Roe, but he says that's not really, you know, he says he says he says that's not where the court should stop, and he's very explicit that the court should reconsider um, all areas of law um, that have to do with, um, you know, that have to do with substantive due process, and they're based on the Fourteenth Amendment in that sense. And so, and he specifically brings up, right? He explicitly um, brings up the Obergefell case, which had to do with. Uh, you know, it's basically had to do same-sex marriage, the Griswold case, which has to do with contraception, and uh, um, what was the old Lawrence case that has to do with, um, uh, you know, same-sex intimacy. And so, um, you know, so basically you have um, those, 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 those three cases, and, you know, he says, and of course he says, and others. So, um, you know, so basically he's, he says this is where the court should head. And I do think, you know, on the one hand, 
I understand, and I, you know, and Alito is at great pains, right, to say that abortion is different, and he's very explicit that it's different because it involves another potential life. Um, so, you know, Alito says it's very, di- you know, it's different from these other situations. But I think, you know, from my reading, I mean, I think Thomas is actually really onto something. I think he's very, I think in some ways he's being almost more honest about the logic in some cases than Alito, right? I mean, if you're saying that substantive due process doesn't protect um, rights that aren't grounded in the history and tradition of the United States, you know, contraception, gay marriage, right? None of those are also protected in the history and tradition of the United States. And so it's unclear why they also don't apply, right? And Thomas is basically saying, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly how this goes. And this is where, what we should do um, from here. Um, and so I do think there's sort of a, you know, a very, I don't know, brusqueness in some ways, but also, you know, very openness in some ways about what Thomas is, is thinking. Not that Thomas hasn't been open before. He cites himself actually interestingly repeatedly to say, I've said all this before. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, but basically he's very, he's very open about where he thinks the court, court should go from here. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, we're not talking about the other big case from last week. Uh, you know, Thomas is writing the opinion on, um, on, uh, gun on the conceal and carry law, but it's certainly consistent reasoning for him on the originalist position to say we've got to go all the way back to um, where the founding fathers allowed people to have weapons and you know and where they didn't and um, and I, and you know and again that's then a challenge of the um, of the originalist position in some ways is well the founding fathers might not have imagined all the spaces or reasons or types of ammunition that we, you know, would have today. So it's, it's sort of a different question, but yet, I mean, Thomas is certainly consistent in his legal reasoning and maybe has a good objection to make to Alito. Um, I do think that Thomas's, uh, Thomas's concurrence in a lot of ways seems to me to, um, be getting more voice in terms of uh, what's sparking fear in public debate, wondering where the court and the Republican Party are going to go next. I think it's going to be interesting if there's any political backfire against that um, in the midterm elections in an attempt to shore up uh, some of the rights that he's potentially called into question Um and so it, it's interesting because it it seems that Thomas's concurrence is maybe even getting more attention than Alito's reasoning in the opinion. Yeah, I I have such mixed feelings about Thomas concurring opinion. Like, I mean, he's been wailing on, you know, substantive due process is completely bonkers and made up. And it actually just violates the plain meaning of the word, right? Due process is about due process. And he's been saying that for a long time. And I agree. Um, on the other hand, it's like, oh, come on, Thomas, could you have saved this for a law review article? Or you've said this in so many words before, did you really have to include this concurrence um, in sort of the biggest sort of decision um, that you knew was going to make waves? Um, it's just throwing gas on the fire. So I really wish he had sort of held held his um, hold his fire, so to speak, on this point, um, even though I think he makes some compelling reasons um, from a purely sort of legal standpoint. Um, he does suggest that you could ground, um, you know, some of the, the rights in these other cases in other parts of the Constitution, and he makes some suggestions about how 
some of that might work, but he sort of declines to really delve into that. Um, unfortunately, you know, the, the predictable reaction was, you know, a lot of your left-leaning outlets, of course, while the right-wing outlets, outlets were celebrating, the left wing outlets were sort of highlighting, you know, the Supreme Court, you know, the next thing it's going to do is it's going to overturn all these cases, which, of course, is just another instance of irresponsible journalism, because, you know, you know, Alito is, you know, takes pains to sort of point out it's not what's going to happen, even though we can maybe say that Thomas is perhaps being more honest. That's an interesting question. Um, but Kavanaugh, and maybe we can move on to Kavanaugh's concurrence here. Kavanaugh really just throws just ice cold water um, all over that in his concurrence, um, because basically Kavanaugh, we know, is um, is the median justice on the Supreme Court in some sense. Um, and he almost always votes with, with the majority. Um, and Kavanaugh has very clearly signaled um, that he disagrees with Thomas on this point. Um, and Kavanaugh has also signaled um, that, um, that he thinks that you know, a variety of sort of state um, attempts to, for example, um, sort of ban um, traveling to go receive abortion in another state. Those sorts of laws, he thinks, are are unconstitutional. And he said that um, in his concurring opinion. So basically, Kavanaugh is saying, at least on this current court, none of that's going to happen. Those sorts of laws are going to get struck down. Ultimately, he says that um, the Constitution is neutral about abortion. And he says that the court needs to be neutral on abortion. Um, and he sort of takes a similar sort of point to Alito about it's not the court's job to sort of decide what um, what sort of right to abortion there is. That's something that should be left to the people. Uh, but he also isn't going to stand for some of the shenanigans that um, that you might see from more sort of right leaning states. And he sort of is warning them essentially not to attempt some of those things. So, um, so I, I wish Kavanaugh's concurring opinion would um, received the same sort of attention that uh, Thomas's opinion um, has, but of course that's not what not what has happened. But um, that's some reassurance for um, for those people who are, of course, legitimately concerned about um, what Thomas said. I do think you know one of the things as far as Kavanaugh goes, um, you know Kavanaugh's argument. You know, I, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's exactly what Kavanaugh is saying here. Um, but I do wonder, I mean, there's a couple of things that I guess I took away from Kavanaugh. One of them is, especially like, at, I think it's towards the end. I can't remember if it's the last paragraph or second to last paragraph where, I mean, he's really explicit. I mean, this is what he, I mean, this is, I'm just reading like I have little clips and notes here in my thing, but he says like, you know, second, and, and he's, he, this is where, what he says, he says, quote, second, as I see it, some of the other abortion related legal questions raised by today's decisions are especially difficult as a constitutional matter. And so then in quote, and he goes into the stuff that Matt just described, right, is that he says he's not going to tolerate. But I think, I mean, to some degree, I mean, again, we go back to like this idea of the rule of law and then, you know, the argument of needing, you know, a consistent law that isn't based on a single, you know, that isn't based on people's opinions. I think that phrasing actually sort of is problematic in itself. I mean, where Kavanaugh is basically saying, here's what I'm saying. And everybody, you know, sort of whispering the subtext, which is, and everybody knows I'm the fifth vote, you know, um, and here's what I think, therefore what I think is law. And it's like, that's exactly what we're not supposed to have, right? I mean, we're not supposed to have a situation where like, you know, you, you know, Kavanaugh woke up in the morning and, you know, bumped his leg. And so now that's, you know, what he thinks is, is allowable is what's allowable. And it's like, you know, that's, that's, that's what we're trying to avoid. And yet 
that's exactly what Kavanaugh is saying he's doing, <laughs> um, you know, and so that's, you know, I think there's, I think there's a real issue there, you know, on the one hand, um, you know, I think it's, I, I think, you know, obviously I think Matt's totally right. You know, Kavanaugh is directly trying to address Thomas and saying, you know, pipe down or whatever. Um, but um, on the other hand, I think just the way that that plays out um, is, is an issue. And I think the other side of that too is, you know, on the one hand, you know, it's one thing to sort of say that, that you're not going to do this. It's another thing for that to actually happen. And I think that's, you know, it comes back to this other question, you know, what happens if, you know, what happens if the unthinkable happens, right? You know, and Kavanaugh, you know, suffers some fatal, you know, fatal heart attack or, you know, heaven forbid, you know, somebody does assassinate him or something like, you know, you know, one of these, you know, something terrible happens to him, you know, then does all that go away, right? You know, and that's, I think, where, you know, the, the freak out, right, to some extent is is legitimate, right? I mean, if, if all that is stopping this, right, is just the, you know, is literally Kavanaugh's, um, you know, personal views on what the Constitution says and doesn't say, then that's pretty thin comfort, right? That's that's cold um, comfort. If that's, you know, if, if it's just his his sort of personal opinions that are that are reigning in, um, you know, the logic, right, the intent, you know, the more consistent logic of, of Thomas. Um, yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. Um, I'll push back on a couple of points, um, with regards to the latter point. Um, it's not entirely clear that Gorsuch or Barrett would be on board with Thomas's line of reasoning. Um, especially Barrett, who is more of an institutionalist. Um, although we're still trying to get a sense of, um, her jurisprudence, she's the newest member of the court. Um, so if, you know, Gorsuch were to keel over and be replaced by uh, a Thomas clone, I still don't think you would have sort of the overture or even two Thomas clones. I don't still don't see you would necessarily have Thomas, uh, basically um, these, all of these previous precedents being vacated um, and, you know, starry decisis being sort of chunked overboard. Um, as Alita pointed out, there's other, there's other issues at stake, um, that the court has to take into consideration beyond stare decisis. There's workability, there's a uh, reliance interest, right? And I think those are legitimate things that we should sort of pay attention to. Um, also, you know, I, I, I take your point that, you know, Kavanaugh is, you know, I mean, in some ways what Kavanaugh is doing, it's almost like a miniature advisory opinion saying like, hey, no one asked me what I think um, as, you know, a, a Supreme Court justice, but, here, but here's how I would rule in a future case, right? It's called an advisory opinion of sorts. Um, and I agree, you know, that's generally not a good thing for the court to do. Um, I would say that because this is a single concurrence and given sort of the nature of the opinion, I'm glad he included it. Um, and I'm glad he's sending a signal um, that ultimately um, he's not going to stand for, you know, certain sorts of actions by states um, that are clearly in violation of the Constitution and whole just buckets load of case law, right? I mean, so for example, saying like, we're going to strike down, you know, state laws that try to criminalize or prohibit traveling to, you know, go to another state um, for for any number of things, possibly including abortion, right? Like, well, that is in clear violation with just a giant set of case law that has to do sort of with the right of, to, to free movement, right? Um, and so, He's not really saying anything that isn't sort of clear in the overwhelming sort of jurisprudence on these sorts of things. So I don't think it's it's quite as bad, perhaps. Um, and maybe this is where there's a little bit of daylight between our opinions on this. Um, 
I, I for one, am glad that he included this. And I, I, you know, I think, I think his, his desire to sort of taking pains to point out that, you know, the constitution is neither pro-life nor pro-choice and the court needs to sort of back out of these sorts of um, decisions as much as possible, I think is, is probably, probably the right approach. Um, Although it's certainly, you know, very controversial and creates a lot of, a lot of um, instability um, in the short term. And it does remind me of the distinction Mitch was making, you know, between the tension of liberalism and democracy, right? I mean, the fear of, of the Thomas concurrence is an undoing of, of the air, you know, airing on the side of liberalism, the protection of the rights for the minority that can easily get stomped in the democratic process. Yeah, I would want to push back on that too. Um, and I think a pro-life advocate would say, and Alito basically says this um, in his you know, opinion for the majority that says basically the joint dissent um, and most pro-abortion advocates, whenever they're talking about sort of rights um, and the points of protecting rights are only considering the rights of one class that has interest in this case. And that is the rights of the women, which certainly are significant. Um, but you actually have to consider sort of the rights of sort of both parties in this. And, and I think what is so great about um, Kavanaugh's opinion um, is that he's basically, you know, he basically says, I'm just going to sort of scroll, um, scroll to the opinion here, which I have sort of marked up. Um, he says at the very beginning, abortion is a profoundly difficult and contentious issue because it presents an irreconcilable conflict between the interest of a pregnant woman who seeks an abortion and the interest in protecting fetal life. The interests on both sides of the abortion issue are extremely extraordinary, extraordinarily weighty, right? Um, I think any sort of conversation you have about sort of the protection of rights um, needs to include sort of a discussion of what are the rights of, of the fetus here. Um, it's not just women's rights that are in question, it's the rights of these two different parties. Um, and you have to sort of decide, um, decide, you know, how, you know, what are those rights on both sides? How should they be weighed against each other? And then what role um, does sort of the democratic process have in sort of um, feeling out sort of um, what the rights are and when the state has an interest in protecting sort of one set of rights over another or how the state states are going to go about balancing those rights. So there's certainly a tension between sort of democracy and liberalism, but I think there's a whole another layer of complexity because this isn't merely a question of supporting the rights of one class of individuals. It has to do with um, rights conflicts between two different classes of individuals. Yeah. And I think, you know, I would agree 100%, especially from an ethical perspective and just kind of reading different statements that came out over the last, uh, over the weekend, um, the presiding bishop of the ELCA um, wrote a statement, and this isn't an endorsement of, of ELCA, but I, 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 a particular quote um, that I thought was really important is that the tension is you can't claim exclusive rights on either side that a woman doesn't have an exclusive right to do anything she might want with a pregnancy and a fetus can't have an exclusive right over the life and body of, 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 of the woman that it is inhabiting during the pregnancy and that tension. And, and, you know, going back to something we said at the beginning where the majority of Americans aren't on either polar side. They're in this complicated, um, they're 
may be some good reasons why an abortion is justified, why we might err sometimes on the rights of the woman over the fetus. Um, the duration of the pregnancy might matter in that the circumstances under which the woman became pregnant might matter in that the health of the mother might matter in that. Um, and the, the sweeping overturning of Roe uh, going back to the Roberts concurrence, the sweeping overturning of Roe seems to have taken away all of the rights of the pregnant woman constitutionally um, and, and leaves it then to the issue of where she may happen to live and what resources she might happen to have to travel or to access resources in another part of the country. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that, except to say that, again, on the Roberts opinion, maybe the court might have landed at a better place had they moved more slowly. Maybe. Um, and I suspect this is where we disagree. It seems that what the Roe opinion did is it didn't merely provide a statement about state interest in promoting women's health and protecting women's rights is it basically said here is a particular balance between these competing interests. Um, and what the Dobbs decision attempts to do is to basically say, we're stepping out of trying to adjudicate what that balance is, right? Um, the Roe decision had made a particular statement of what that balance is. And basically Dobbs is saying, we're removing ourselves from that, from that discussion. This is probably the right place to like move into thinking about the dissent. Um, yep. And just a couple of things. I mean, there's a couple of things that are sort of interesting about it. I mean, one is that it's a jointly authored dissent, which is itself interesting, um, you know, and that oftentimes justices might sometimes will join each other, but it's pretty, it's not super common, particularly for a dissent for them to write, you know, essentially what is a, in a single voice. So that in itself um, is significant, um, you know, and, and shows the seriousness with which they view this this case. Um, it's also notable, I think, that you know, normally when justices dissent, um, it is it is normal Supreme Court etiquette to say that they respectfully dissent, and it is noticeably absent in both of the places where the justices say they dissent that they do not say that they are respectfully dissenting. Um, you know, they specifically. Um, yeah, so they 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 explicitly, you know, at the, at the very end of the opening summary, right, their opening uh, section, right, you know, they say the court departs from its obligation to faithfully and impartially apply the law. We dissent, right? That's it. And so, um, you know, so that's also notable, I think, as sort of backdrop for how the how the three um, dissenting justices, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer, are are thinking about um, this particular this particular um, outcome and and opinion. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Well, no, I'm I'm jumping in just to say I in in doing that, I, Mitch. As much as you do, I like reading the tea leaves of the court here, um, and I understand that they're saying this with, you know, by, by, I agree with you by co-authoring or um, um, rather than joining, they're they're really sort of in, indicating their seriousness of speaking with one voice. Do you really read into this like like the dropping the word respectfully is 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 meaningful in this sense? 
Oh yes. Oh, I think it's I okay. think it's meaningful for sure. Yeah. No, I mean it's it's very much part of Supreme Court etiquette to say that they uh, and, and part of that goes back to I mean the fact that on the Supreme Court, I mean they all recognize that even though they disagree, and even within the different sort of, you know, if you will, camps, right, of, you know, originalist, pragmatist, liberal, sure. whatever, right, they're sometimes very sharp disagreements, even between each other. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And yet, I mean, what they always try to maintain is this air of collegiality, of friendship, or maybe not, maybe friendship is too strong. Um, but, you know, but this air of sort of like trying to get along. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's like, yeah, Matt's sort of waving his head. I mean, it's true. I mean, like Justice Ginsburg and Justice Scalia, right. Two people who couldn't be more different in terms of their judicial philosophies and opinions. I mean, are famous for their close personal friendship, you know, that they, you know, sure. they constantly went to the opera together, they vacationed together, they did all kinds of stuff. So, um, so, you know, so that respect, right, that respectfulness between the different justices is something that's highly prized. Um, if nothing else, just for practical reasons, they're all appointed for life. So they know they have to live with each other for decades, um, you know. And so that sort of like collegiality and respectfulness is something that really is um, really important. And so when it's missing, um, it is definitely there and missing for a reason. Like that is that is saying something that they essentially so understand. I'll- yeah. So I'll just throw this in here because I think you guys have been, all three of you have been doing a great job sort of walking through the various uh, ways that this case has been framed by the court itself. And we're going to need to dissent here. Um, and I want to quickly turn towards politics. But one thing to kind of put a pin in, which is unanswerable right now, is to what extent are, is, the, um, is this case perhaps done damage to the court internally? And has, it, and has this case done damage to the court internally? I know we can't answer that right now, but we should get to the sense, but that's the, that's something to put a pin into for further observation. No, I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, and Matt brought it up earlier too, but I mean, you know, the, the leaked draft, I mean, all of that stuff has, you know, I, it's difficult, I think, to, you know, overstate uh, the damage that, that this case for lots of reasons <laughs> has done both internally and externally, um, you know, to the court. Um, you know, it's clear that there is deep, distrust and anger um, between some of the justices here. And that's not healthy for anybody. You know, it's not healthy for the country. It's not healthy for the court as an institution. Um, It's, you know, um, it's just not good. Yeah. And again, we don't know who leaked the draft um, and all that stuff. So we don't really know where to point blame, but it remains the fact, right. That this is, you know, there's, there's been a lot of, all of this is sort of compounding on itself, obviously. Yeah. Well, Um, which is why you, if you want, that's the thing, justices, for the most part, oftentimes vote together. Um, there are sort of large majorities in most of the justices' opinions. Um, and I think where you see the most splits is when the court is making the most sort of consequential, some of the most consequential decisions, right? Which is why in some ways, that's what you don't want the court to do, right? You don't want the court to have to sort of weigh in on these difficult policy questions, um, which I think goes back to something that Mitch was saying earlier, um, I still maintain that it was it's good for the court to try to sort of exercise the demons um, of Roe and try to get out of this, which means making, you know, a very difficult decision now. We can talk about whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. But as to, you know, whether or not, you know, this is going to permanently damage relationships, I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, I think the leak is going to do more to sow distrust um, between the justices and their clerks than perhaps the justices amongst themselves. I suspect there is a great deal of anger. Uh, 
that the justices have jointly about the attacks on the institution of the court, such as the leak, such as the attempted assassination of Brett Kavanaugh, um, that they're all upset about. And perhaps those sorts of attacks um, will sort of galvanize perhaps a little bit of sort of support of the justices for each other um, in sort of their efforts to try to um, sort of, you know, make difficult decisions. But certainly this is, you know, an extremely contentious issue amongst justices. So anyway, back, back to the dissent. So. Um, okay, sure. So, uh, so as far as the dissent goes, I guess I'll, uh, I'll work through the dissent here and their basic argument. <laughs> um, so the basic argument from the dissent um, hinges on several things. Um, you know, there, there's a lot to it, um, but there, oh, but, uh, but there, but there are a handful um, you know, of, 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 of sort of, sort of key, key, key themes and, um, and ideas here. So first of all, um, you know, the court, you know, the, the, uh, the dissent opens by, by essentially making an argument. I think that, uh, that Sarah is related to what Sarah was saying earlier, which is that essentially what the decision does is it reduces the rights that, uh, that women have, um, that essentially as a result of this decision, you know, uh, women waking up in, in the United States post this decision have fewer rights than they did, um, the day before, you know, and, and I think, you know, on, you know, just in going through that, I mean, I, and this goes back to what Sarah said too. I mean, I'll just say whether one thinks that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, I think that's sort of objectively a fact. Um, you know, the court has said that, you know, this is, this should not be a matter of liberalism. This should not be a matter of personal rights as much as it is democracy. Um, and that, you know, there are these competing rights interests. And so therefore, um, you know, the rights of women should not be as uh, placed as, as high in a prior in the priority um, as before. And so, and so they begin to look at this, they then examine um, you know, basically the logical consistency um, of what this means for the court. And so they accent, you know, some of the things we've already talked about. I mean, they pretty much look at, you know, the Thomas concurrence and say, yes, Thomas is exactly right. This is exactly where the logic that Alito is, is, is employing is going to go. And they point out, I mean, in detail, right? I mean, they say like, look, you know, even though, even though Alito says uh, on a couple of cases, you know, none of this should be thought to bring into question other substantive due process cases, you know, they say, look, you apply the same type of reasoning, you know, you look at history and tradition for something like contraception, right? And they specifically look at Griswold and they say, there's not going to be uh, this sort of like history and tradition of the protection of that right. So you follow this exact same logic, you're going to come to the, to this conclusion. It may be slightly different, right? You know, as as Alito, you know, and Matt, Matt pointed out, right, there may be certain other things that sort of are in play, but it's not clear how this, you know, is, is too very awfully different um, from what they're doing, doing there. Um, from there, after they look at that, they then say, um, and, and, you know, basically look at, you know, the other incidents where the court has overturned precedents. And they note that, you know, in those other cases, something, something had to change. Um, you know, something substantive had, had, had changed in the court's understanding. And, you know, basically they say the only thing, you know, their argument, their fundamental argument is the only thing that has changed in, in abortion um, law, at least since 1992, is the makeup of the court, right? It's just the, the certain justices. And this is where they get back to their rule of law um, argument, right? Where they're basically saying, look, 
you know, sure, the court has overturned precedents in the past, but it's been the fruit of a lot of incremental steps, a lot of changes in society, a lot of, you know, maybe factual changes, things like that, none of which they argue are present um, with abortion law right now. And so therefore, they say, you know, this basically is just as, you know, as they say, just as a raw exercise of power, right, where the justices are imposing their own um, will on the, you know, instead of, instead of simply applying the law. And I think one other thing I'll just note, I think that's their core argument, but I think one other thing just to highlight, and I think this gets back to what we were thinking about before and thinking about, you know, the, you know we talked about, the, you know, talked about the strength of originalism. They want to accent and they do accent, you know, the strength essentially of, of an alternative, which is what's usually referred to as pragmatism um, or sometimes like living constitution or things like that. Living constitution gets real dicey. So pragmatism, I think, is the best way to, to say it. Um, and you know, basically, what they say, and this is uh, this is a quote from their, uh, you know, from the from the dissent. They say, um, uh, you know, the answer, you know, this is their answer to originalism. So they say the answer is this: that the court has rejected the majority's uh, that the court has rejected the majority's pinched view of how to read our constitution. The founders, we recently wrote, knew that they were writing a document designed to apply to an ever-changing circumstances over centuries. They cite some precedents where the court has said this. Then they say, or in the words of the great Chief Justice John Marshall, our constitution is, quote, intended to endure for ages to come, unquote, it must adapt itself to the future, quote, seen dimly, unquote, if at all. So, and then they go through and quote this. And then they say the framers, you know, understood that the, wor that the world changes. So they did not define rights by reference to the specific practices existing at the time. Instead, the framers defined rights in general terms to permit future evolution in their scope and meaning. And over the course of our history, the court has taken up the framers' invitation. It has kept true to the uh, framers' principles by applying them in new ways, responsive to new societal understandings and conditions, unquote. And I'll just say, I mean, you know, if you want sort of a textbook or, you know, the most pithy definition of a pragmatist approach to the constitution, that is it, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that is, that is the argument in a nutshell um, stated, I think, you know, in fairly strong terms. I mean, and I'll just say, you know, I said what I thought the strengths of originalism are the strengths of this argument, right. Is, is, is basically twofold. I mean, number one, um, they're pointing out, right. That the founders themselves nowhere asserted originalism. And so, you know, there's an interesting paradox, right, in that originalism um, asserts a view for which there is no originalist argument um, to be made, right? That basically the idea that the you should go back to the meaning of the founders isn't something the founders themselves asserted. Um, and so that's part of their argument there, right? They're saying the framers didn't do this, right? And they even cite John Marshall, who, of course, is, you know, he's one of the, he's, he's sometimes, I think, seen as a founder, um, you know, in spirit, at least, <laughs> even though he wasn't involved in writing any of the original documents, he was certainly involved in sort of shaping what they meant. Um, and so, you know, so, you know, he says, you know, the Constitution has to adapt. And, you know, the founders, you know, they say, you know, the Constitution has to, you know, there are going to be new circumstances that they didn't anticipate. And so the justices are saying, you know, that's exactly what uh, a pragmatist interpretation of the constitution does. It says, what are the principles? What are the ideals that are said? You know, so you look at an ideal like the freedom of speech, right? And you say, okay, well, what's the ideal is that we need free expression. So then you ask yourself, what does that look like today? Right? You don't ask yourself what pamphlets were and were allowed in, you know, you know, 1787, you ask yourself, what does, what is, what is, what makes sense in terms of free expression today? And that's essentially what the pragmatist is looking at it's not that they and they're and they also go to great pains to say it's not that we're saying we get to invent things we don't get to sort of like go out and make up whatever we want 
um, you know, as, as a pragmatist justice, right? But they say what we're trying to do, the they're there in terms of the rule of law is these core principles and ideals. And they think that's exactly what, and they think that's what the founders themselves were pointing to as well. So that's the strength of their, their argument is these principles and ideals. So, and that's, yeah, so that's in a nutshell what their argument is, right? And they say one of the principles and ideals is personal ability to determine your own life. Women have lost that. Therefore, this is opposed to the ideals of the constitution. Thanks. Yeah. And, and I think um, when we talk about, you know, that issue of women losing rights and a pragmatist position over an originalist position, I mean, I think a, a lot of um, women, certainly not all of them, but a lot of women feel like I, I've almost never been reflected in the Constitution until the 20th century. So if we're going to turn the clock back in, in time, that's going to just can, you know, we're going to a period where I wasn't even recognized as, as having a political right to vote. So um, I think there's a lot of fear of the originalist reading um, because of the way that it, uh, when we go back to those periods of time, we're very mindful of the people who have been previously excluded, even if we've attempted to change and amend the constitution in some ways to address for those things. We, we also still have even 20th century, you know, examples of the equal rights amendment not passing and, you know, and not having that put into constitutional law. So there's um, when we put things at the hands of democracy, that doesn't necessarily entail any better protection for, for women's rights. I also want to say, though, as I'm speaking about women's rights and 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 I put my Sarah Shady public philosopher hat on here, you know, to go back to the point and reiterate, um, really, no one argues that abortion is a moral good and we should encourage people to have abortion. <laughs> you know, similarly, abortion is treated ethically um, in ways that we might think of something like war. Maybe it's sometimes a necessary, um, a necessary evil or a necessary wrong or a necessary harm. And then determining the criteria for that necessity becomes really the, the relevant issue. So even though we would have extremist positions, you know, saying, right, we should have a right to abortion all the way through um, until birth, um, and, and others saying no abortion ever, not even in the case of the life of the mother. I mean, the, the vast majority of ethical reasoning is in between those two poles. And Christians so hold a lot of different positions within those two poles mm -hmm. as well. And with that, actually, it's a moment where I'd like to jump back into this conversation a little bit. Um, with the Dobbs decision and with throwing this decision now, or the, the decision to, on how we govern in terms of public policy about abortion, we've now thrown it back to the laboratory of the states. And so we're about to see a whole bunch of different state-level policies which will be enacted, some of which are the more extreme on one side that Sarah is mentioning, some which are more extreme on the other side. Um, and eventually some of those decisions will also make their way up to, to the Supreme Court to be adjudicated as well. But what we'll see out of this, I think, is sort of uh, Christians in particular grappling with how do we now think about this issue? 
uh, now that this has been um, sort of pushed back to state level, we'll be forced to grapple with a whole variety of minutia about, uh, about the public policies surrounding abortion. Um, so I'd like to set an agenda for us. Um, that we, we, I know we all need to head out here pretty quickly. We've done a good job walking through the majority of the, the majority opinion in this case, uh, the uh, concurring opinions, the dissenting opinion, and the legal rationale around them. Now we need to be good political scientists and and ethicists and, and uh, moral ethicists and think about the implications of this, um, and what we think, how we think this might affect for example, uh, November's elections, crass though that may be, and how we think this will affect uh, um, uh, future alignments in political parties. And so we don't have time for that today, uh, but we do need to head in those directions. Before I sign us off here, folks, final thoughts about this case or final reflections or even recent recommendations for people as they're looking to process this issue a little bit more. Um, I would say one of the things that I would encourage people to do if you don't already is get um, good research, which can be found. Um, the Guttmacher Institute, Pew has good research, um, other organizations as well. But on d- statistics about who is most likely to have an abortion, because that points us to other ways for reducing the number of abortions besides legal methods for that. And so I just encourage Christians beyond this decision to think broadly, what does it mean to promote life? And there's a whole lot of uh, related issues to that, whether that's life in utero or life after birth. Um, How do we promote um, economic resources, adoption? How do we address the challenges of the overwhelming number of kids in the foster care system? How do we think about um, uh, the exorbitant cost of childcare? How do we think about the lack of legal uh, guaranteed paid maternal or paternal leave when there is a birth. Um, And there's so many issues surrounding this that complicate things. And, you know, and um, I always end uh, Sarah Shady, public philosopher with the phrase, do some good in the world today. But I think we need to, as Christians, think broadly about what does it mean to promote life well for all people, regardless of race, religion, ethnicity, economic status, um, gender. So that's my, those are some of my closing thoughts. Yeah, I'd I'd like to agree with uh, Sarah on that. Um, I mean, if you hadn't noticed, listener, that I'm glad Roe has been overturned, um, I'll make that explicit now. Um, But my approval of Rose being overturned um, for legal reasons is sort of tempered by um, this this deep concern I have about some troubling trends um, on the political right and the pro-life movement as a whole, um, which I'll speak to just a little bit. And I'm sure Mitch and I are are in sort of violent agreement on this, but, um, but what we've seen sort of on sort of the political, we've seen the political right and sort of the pro-life movement become sort of joined at the hip. Um, and as the political right has become much like parts of the political left, increasingly characterized by sort of fear and anger and tribalism, we've seen that bleed over into the pro-life movement. 
um, we've seen parts of the pro-life movement become sort of increasingly absolutist, um, increasingly strident, and increasingly unreasonable. Um, an example of this from very recently, um, we see in a resolution that was passed at the annual convention of the Southern Baptist Convention um, just in June, um, that basically calls for prohibitions on abortion without exception, including that exceptions for the life of the mother, um, and explicitly rejects any sort of incremental approach in trying to um, reduce the number of abortions in the United States. And what we're seeing is we're seeing on the political right, um, an increasingly set of toxic attitudes and beliefs um, about life in general. Um, the disregard for the poor and the immigrant, uh, the embrace of authoritarianism, um, making excuses for political violence. And as the pro-life movement has become increasingly bound up with the political right, um, what we've seen is the political right becoming increasingly sick. And with that, uh, along with that, an increasingly sick um, pro-life movement. This isn't true of all people who hold pro-life views, but um, we're certainly seeing an increase of that. And I had hoped originally that returning sort of this question of abortion to the states would help to lower the temperature um, in the culture war over abortion. Um, but I'm not seeing any signs of that yet. And that concerns me. Um, and I'm, I'm concerned that sort of the, the absolutionist, the, the abolitionist absolutionists, you might say, on, on the pro-life side, um, in some ways are just as big of a threat to a culture of life um, as anyone sort of on the secular left is. Um, I understand my saying that might make some people very angry, um, but I genuinely do think that sort of the move, what we're seeing sort of amongst some pro-life folks and many on the political right um, is detrimental to sort of public policy that is pro-life in a holistic sense and also to promoting a cultural life. And the stridency that we've seen amongst some of them um, is, is not going to win hearts and minds um, and is instead potentially going to create a backlash, um, much like you saw um, with the abolitionist movement um, in some quarters of the rad radical abolitionist movement um, in the previous uh, couple centuries ago. So I could go on about this more, but it's something that, that I'm troubled about, um, something that worries me, um, even though um, I do think that um, the overturning of, of Roe is, is a good thing, sort of legally and morally, um, where things are going um, with the pro-life movement um, I find deeply sort of troubling, so. I guess I'll just say like two things, um, but one of them is, you know, I and just to sort of uh, partially to build off of what Matt said too, I mean, is to say that, you know, whether whether overturning Roe is good or bad, um, you know, just sort of bracketing that, whether, whether that was a good or bad thing. I mean, the reality is that it is what happened. And so there are sort of different ways that this can happen, you know, that we can go forward from here. Yeah. And I think, you know, particularly for, for Christians, I mean, you know, Sarah's already emphasized a number of ways of thinking about this broadly. You know, I was thinking as Sarah was talking about this, you know, I was thinking about um, one person that I've um, has, has written a few pieces about this and know in the New York Times, maybe in Christianity Today too, actually, is Trish Warren Harrison. And uh, she's written a number of, of, of very interesting and I think useful pieces for thinking through some of these um, issues. And, um, the other thing, you know, so, yeah. And so just to say like, you know, there's, there's different ways that, that we can go forward. And I, I just always want to emphasize, you know, that something that Matt and I think Sarah both said is that, you know, 
making something criminal is not the same thing as preventing it or stopping um, something from happening. And I think that's the confusion that has sort of set in to some degree on the, you know, on the pro-life side, right? Is this idea that um, criminalizing something um, is sort of the end, uh, is sort of the end goal. And I think, you know, there's a deep, not, you know, naivete about that. I mean, if, if, if criminalizing, you know, drugs um, won the war, then I guess we won the war on drugs, right? Because they're all illegal. Um, and there are severe penalties attached um, if you violate those laws. Um, but as we all know, that's a fiction. <laughs> and that is, in fact, we've discovered that's actually not the best way even to combat, um, you know, the bad effects of, uh, of most uh, drugs in, in society and in the world. And so, you know, it's not to say, you know, again, there are I'm not going to stake out a position in terms of like what I think the criminal area should be, but it's just to say that that's, you know, that's not necessarily, you know, the, the, the most effective or, um, you know, the best way to be, to be pro-life at this stage, you know, whether this is um, good or bad, you know, the, the good side, you know, if nothing else uh, of not having Ron anymore is that it does provide states with flexibility, but there's also a deep danger in how that flexibility is going to um, be used. Yeah, I'll keep my comments uh, narrow here as we wrap up, and only to say that um, whatever uh, Roe and the position of the two parties were on uh, abortion prior to this decision, it was used as a tool for polarization. It was a, it was a weaponized tool for polarization. We've talked about that at the beginning of this podcast. And what this decision has done is thrown it, in, uh, thrown it into flux. Um, it remains weaponizable. It remains a tool for polarization, but now it becomes very multifaceted. Um, and uh, I think the complexity of, this, of, of, of the decisions surrounding it, surrounding the issue of abortion has multiplied and the policy debates have only begun. If you thought that this decision resolved any kinds of questions, it, the opposite is true. Uh, we've just now opened up an enormous number of doors uh, to debate uh, this policy issue, and it will be debated, and that will have um, electoral effects, which this podcast will deal with, and it will also have um, important, very important moral and and and, poli and policy questions as well. Thank you, uh, panelists. Thank you for coming in on your summer break to have this lengthy um, and I think very rich discussion. Thank you, listeners uh, who stuck with us to, to hear my voice here now. Um, for joining us uh, for this episode of Election Shock Therapy. Just a little bit of programming note. Um, I am going to, kicking and screaming, drag these people back together at some point in the future uh, to continue this conversation and talk about the policy implications of this decision. Yes, Matt, you got to talk about policy too. Um, and also uh, other Supreme Court decisions, which Sarah alluded to and others that are also very significant consequential in this term. And so we'll investigate those things as well in a future episode. Thanks for listening to us. You can always reach out to us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com and um, I ask questions or suggest future topics for episodes. Uh, we'll become more consistent in your podcast feed once the school year starts back up, but we'll continue our little mini-series in the Supreme Court here in the coming weeks. Uh, thanks for listening to us. And on behalf of my colleagues uh, at Bethel University and uh, University of South Carolina at Aiken, until we come back in your podcast feed, go Royals. Go Royals.